So when I was younger, we're, the passage is really long, so we didn't have someone read it because it would also, I'll read it as we go. Um, we're in Genesis 29. That's just where we're going to start. And we're going to end in Genesis 30, 24. And I promise this won't be an hour and a half. Um, when I was younger, during my early days in middle school and high school, there was kind of this moment uh, where my soul was awakened to the things of God. And I became really passionate about him. And so, you know, God put in my heart a deep level of excitement for him and what he cared about. And I still had a lot going on in my life, a lot of things I was figuring out, but I was on fire for God. And I wanted every part of my life to be saturated with his presence and power. And before I go on, you know, maybe you aren't even there yet. And I do want to pause and say, maybe uh, that's what you need this morning. Maybe you just need to start with that step, asking God, are you real? Are you powerful? Are you, are you for me? Do you love me? Can you show that to me? So I want to encourage you to seek him. But see, I was just on the cusp of that experience, and I felt like I was on the right track. Uh, but one thing I found as I lived my, Christ- my newly found Christian life was that living life for God was not what I thought it would be. You see, while I thought I wasn't perfect, I thought I was well on my way. I thought things were kind of working well in here. I thought the real issues I see now are out there and the people out there. I mean, if you ask me, I would say, of course, I've got my own issues, I, you know, but, but it's these people, these circumstances that weren't set straight yet. I figure God's will, the way God's working in my life is to see these things, these places, these people set right. And I wasn't entirely wrong. It's not that God didn't have work to do out there, but what I was blind to was my own brokenness. And so God allowed for situation after situation, relationship after relationship, Christian community after Christian community to bring about just a sense of longing, disappointment, And for long periods of time, I became discouraged and disillusioned. This is over the course of many, many years. And I sometimes would even wonder if God is real, or maybe I'd think he's real, but I wasn't really sure what he was up to. And what I didn't see was that God had a purpose for which he was using these situations. And there was a grace he intended to show me in the midst of it all. And so as we continue making our way through the book of Genesis uh, this morning, we see Jacob fresh off an encounter with God. He's finally taken this faith of his parents for himself, right? He's had this moment, an encounter with God, and he's realized that he's not alone, that God is for him, not against him. But this encounter with God at Bethel in the last chapter doesn't spare him from difficulty. And he and his family are put in situations that ultimately expose their need for God and show them their deep-seated idols, the things they're putting in front of God, and ultimately provide a glimpse of the joy that God desires for them. So let's look in Genesis chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, and shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came to her father's sheep, came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, 
and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Rachel comes up with her father's sheep in this dramatic moment. Jacob sees her. He's so excited to see family. And Jacob, remember, he was not the outdoorsy guy, right? He was the tent-dwelling guy, right? But Jacob, the tent-dweller, rolls away this humongous rock from the well, and he helps feed his uncle's flock. So clearly his, his sojourning by himself has produced some enormous strength or just the adrenaline of seeing family. So he kisses Rachel and he weeps. By the way, this isn't like a romantic thing uh, necessarily. Um, he's, this, in a lot of cultures, it's normal to kiss people that are your friends or family, and, and, it, and it has no romantic connotation. And so he tells Rachel who he is, that he's Rebecca's son, and she runs and tells her father. Now, in order to understand what's happening here, you have to remember the last time we were at a well in Genesis, and it was only two chapters ago. The last time someone on a quest to find a wife found themselves at a well, and it was when Abraham sent his servant to find Isaac a wife, who is Jacob's father, right? And he sent, I, he sent a servant to find Laban's sister, Rebekah. So it's Laban's sister, Jacob's mom. So surely Jacob remembers this story, right? You know, your kids, if you have kids, they ask you, oh, how did you guys meet? Or you just tell them even though they don't want to know. Um, and so surely Jacob remembers the story. No question he's told of how his grandfather, uh, uh, you know, was, uh, his grandfather sent someone and found his mother by a well in this incredible coincidence or, or in God's providence, actually. And Laban no doubt remembers the way his sister left their house to marry this wealthy man out west in this sort of God-ordained moment, right? So Jacob probably has this in his mind. He's on this quest. He's running away from his brother, and he's out to find a wife. But there are differences. To find Isaac's wife, Abraham's servant was sent with, like, lavish gifts, right, and camels and jewelry, this whole caravan of stuff. And what would have customarily been sort of inappropriate stuff to bring when you are looking for a wife. But what did Jacob come with? Nothing. The Bible says that Laban comes running. And so, you know, by the way, with Laban, he's not going to look very good for the next few chapters. Um, and uh, some commentaries and people try to point Laban as this just horrible guy, just a flat character, you know, sort of like an evil villain in a, in a movie or something like that. But I'm going to say it's probably more complicated. For example, why is he running here? You know, it says that he's, he's running to, basically, it makes a reference to it being about family. So he, maybe he's excited to see someone from his family, his nephew. But then based on his later, his later behavior, maybe he thinks, well, the last time this family sent someone here, there was, we got a lot of stuff. We, we, were, we were made quite wealthy by what was brought. And so maybe he's thinking, maybe there's lots of nice gifts and presents uh, with this family. Maybe that's happening this time. But you know what? Maybe it was a little bit of both. And aren't we the same way, right? Sometimes you're excited to meet someone, but if you kind of know that also the last time you met them, they, they brought something really nice, you have that little hope. Maybe you'll bring that again, right? Maybe when you were little, I still have it. I'm sorry, just, you know, just to be real, right? So, uh, and I think the Bible, it doesn't make sense of it. It doesn't mention his motivations here. And so I think it leaves him three-dimensional as we often are. That's what's great about the word of God. So Laban runs and finds that Jacob is alone though. So this is different from Genesis 24, two chapters ago. 
Someone's come to find a wife, but he has no camels. Where's the gifts? Where's the stuff? And if you remember, something else is different. In Genesis 24, when Abraham's servant, from the moment he leaves to the moment he gets there and comes back, he's, asked, he's talking with God. After a lifetime of serving with his master Abraham, he's in constant dialogue with God, asking God for success, asking God for guidance, asking God to reveal the character of the woman that is meant for Isaac. If, if, if she'll serve in this way, if she'll do these things, if she'll show the kind of compassion and hospitality uh, that, that characterize you, God, then I know that this will be right. He's talking with God, but Jacob does none of this. There's no mention of Jacob praying or talking to God at all. And what we see is that Jacob's still kind of early in his walk with the Lord. He hasn't had this lifetime of walking with God like Abraham's servant. And so he's met God, but he's forgotten to be with God. He's met God, but he's forgotten to be with God. And so whether you have been walking with the Lord a long time, or if you've been walking for a little while, just remember to be with God. Be present with him. Talk to him. God has already promised Jacob, I'm always going to be with you. And Jacob sort of says, yeah, I know. And then he just doesn't talk to him. You can save yourself a lot of grief. There's a hymn, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Anybody know this? What a friend we have in Jesus. So it basically says, we, we make ourselves miserable by not bringing things to God in prayer. And so I'd urge you to do that. Um, by the way, this, this kind of shows you, you've got two people, Genesis 24 and now uh, Genesis 29 here. So I guess it's five chapters. Uh, sorry, can't count. Um, Jacob, you know, but they have the same situation. They approach it differently, but they both know the Lord. And so I think this shows that being a Christian is not that you have a single standard that you're adhering to and all Christians are the same. You have the same expectations of every Christian, but it's rather that all the Christians know the same person and are in relationship with the same person. And that relationship is working itself out. And so I think if you're a believer, you may be placing a lot of pressure on yourself to be like another person you see who the Lord has worked in a different way in their life at that season. And I would say like, that's, that's, that's not what we're about. It's not, it's not necessarily who exactly we are, but who we know, right? So let's move on. Laban brings Jacob to his house, and it says, Jacob told Laban all these things. So he told them all the things, I guess. But we have no idea what this means. Clearly, he has to explain his circumstance. He has to make uh, a, a plausible explanation. And even this is different, because when Abraham's servant comes in Genesis 24, you know what he does? He says, it literally just repeats the same scripture that just happened. So like... It, the narrator says, this is what happened. And then it says, and then he went to Laban's house and he goes, this is what happened. And then it literally just carbon copy repeats. This is what I did. This is how I prayed. This is how the Lord answered it. And he, there's this whole recount, a testimony of what God did. Jacob just tells him all the things. There's no mention. It just, it's just different. And so maybe he explains the whole story. Maybe he tells part of it. We don't know. But what's clear, it's very clear. He's been sent away. He doesn't, he's not married He's got nothing from his dad, and he's supposed to find a wife, or at least it's clear that he's come alone, so probably a wife is in the cards that he's looking for. Which, by the way, the scriptures don't say uh, what's going on, but, uh, you know, so whether we don't know, uh, we, whether he tells the full story or not, Laban kind of knows the deal on some level. Um, and he knows that this single guy has come, and that he probably is looking for a wife, but that he has brought none of the customary things. So, for example, dropping by unannounced, that's probably not a problem. Uh, uh, there are plenty of cultures, even uh, to this day, uh, you know, in, in uh, Tanya, my wife's hometown in Russia, uh, her house is just the place where relatives and friends can stop by unannounced. Day and night, any time of the week, someone will show up, and it's like, oh, it's so-and-so. 
They've driven 18 hours to come here. It's like, oh yeah, I have them come in. And then they just put food in front of you and then they sleep on the couch for three days and they leave and there's, there's no problem. This is like all the time, just people in and out. So that's not a problem. But what's, what's strange is that he's, he's come for a wife with none of the usual things that accompany that culturally. So it's odd, coming with nothing. Maybe it's strange and maybe it's even offensive, honestly. There are customs that we are all used to uh, that when someone doesn't abide by them, you start to, you go, well, what's this about? You, you know you're supposed to come with this. So Laban must have been puzzled or disappointed or both. By the way, living in a church community like ours means that we all have different things we get offended by uh, unintentionally, right? So, so Jacob stays with Laban, and Laban says to Jacob in verse 15. Let's look at that. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? And Laban's question is a bit loaded. It's like, hey, should you serve me for nothing? It's kind of a bait to try to be like, all right, let's, let's talk about what we're doing here. Uh, you, you've, you've brought nothing, so uh, clearly, you, got, you, you know, you should serve me for something. Uh, it's basically, how are you going to pay for the reason that you've come? And so, verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, as far as Leah's eyes being weak, uh, it's not clear what that means. We just know that it's in contrast to Rachel being beautiful. So, just... You know, there's, it's, it, maybe it's not exactly as beautiful or, you know, something like that, but it's not entirely clear. Uh, it's clear, though, that uh, Jacob prefers Rachel. Laban says, verse 19, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob, at the mercy of his uncle, with nothing in his pocket, makes this, what, what actually, if you, if, you, if you kind of figure out the labor and what the normal price was or, you know, that the gift was for, for having a wife... He makes this extravagant, over-the-top offer. Seven years of labor. This offer is way overboard. And maybe Jacob deserved that, right? After all he had done, after all, like the way he came to do some hard work, you know, he painted himself into this situation where he'd showed up with nothing at his uncle's doorstep. He probably deserved that, but, but what Laban does is he doesn't take this opportunity to show love and compassion, does he? In this very weird, messy situation in which this nephew has come, for a wife with no, no gift as would be customary, he doesn't take this opportunity to show love and compassion. He just says, yeah, I guess he could work. It's better than her going to another man. Laban has the opportunity to show love. Instead, he sees instead a transactional opportunity. He takes what he can get, and in doing so, he makes his family relationship to Jacob transactional. Friends, when aspects of our family relationships become primarily transactional, if it's about what are you giving me, what am I giving you, they become hurtful, don't they? They become sinful. And Laban does this. Should you work for nothing becomes you should work for something. And I'll make sure it's the most I can get, as we'll see. And so sometimes we do this in the family of God, don't we? Sometimes we do this in our, even in our blood relationships. Friends, have you sometimes become transactional in your relationships in the church? Instead of generous, when life becomes messy, you have a moment of friction and your instinct will be, well, what, am I, what have I gotten from you anyway? When it, in fact, God is giving you an opportunity to show generosity and love in the midst of that messiness. I know, believe me, I know, challenging. Uh, verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then, <laughs> yeah, um, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I, might go into her, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. 
But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, check it out, if you remember last week. Behold this, check it out. Check it out, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And so Jacob finds himself walking into the consequences, this kind of weird mirror of consequences of tricking his brother, his father, running away from home. And then just like a mirror, you know, he tricked his brother in a negotiation and he's tricked into this negotiation to get a wife. Just like he tricked his blind father, he's tricked in the dark on the night of his wedding night into taking the wrong woman as his wife. Is this, is it karma? Is it just payback for what he did? Is it retribution? Is it punishment? Is it what goes around comes around? Some might think so, but we know based on the last chapter that this is not God's posture towards Jacob. God is not in the business of punishing Jacob. He could have already done that. He could have just left him in the wilderness or given him no vision or left him alone. God is for him. And so God, we know that's not his posture. The effects of sin the consequences of sin in the world still persist. Basically, the brokenness is still there, but God is in the process of redeeming that brokenness, but it's not yet undone. And so now that he's with God, it's not retribution or punishment, it's refinement. It's an opportunity to grow in love. It's an opportunity to increase his understanding of the harm that he's caused. It's a process of redemption. We call this sanctification. That's the uh, theological buzzword. It's the process by God which, by which God brings about this new life in you. You see, what Laban will not do, because we, we can see clearly as the chapters go on that Laban doesn't know God, Jacob is given the opportunity to do because he knows God. Now, he doesn't do a great job of it, but he's given that opportunity. Often when we're sinned against, when someone wrongs us, it's an opportunity to shine forth the love and forgiveness of God. And so Laban is almost like this mirror held up, used by God to show Jacob the effects of his own sin. Maybe it's Jacob saying, oh, if I didn't know God, this is what I would end up like. You see, and we know that Jacob doesn't end up that way. Hebrews 12, 6, Proverbs 3, 12, we know that God disciplines those he loves. And Jacob here is receiving the loving but severe mercy of God in encountering this, the, the weight of his deceit and the consequences of his sins, except he's sort of getting it on the other end. God is allowing for this to happen. And he's going to be all right. But God is allowing him to endure this to better understand the cost to others. I've definitely felt this in my life. I remember going through things uh, and then sort of being like, oh, that's what it feels like. I didn't know. I'm so sorry to these people for years and years that I didn't know uh, we're putting up with this that I do. And so sometimes these are, God uses these moments as a mirror. Uh, so God sometimes uses the sin of others and the messiness of life to hold up a mirror to ourselves and our own sin. There is sin, of course, that's done to us that's painful and we bear it because the world's broken. So I'm not saying that this is always, you encounter something difficult, someone sins against you, it's always for this purpose, but sometimes this is the purpose. 
So Jacob's needing here to walk with God and let God be with him, if you remember that, letting God be with him. And Laban is shown in contrast that he's just going to do the ungodly response because he doesn't know the Lord. So remember Genesis 24? Again, the servant seeks a wife for Isaac, and then he just sort of details the process. But then what do they do, if you remember? Actually, Laban is a part of this. Laban and Laban's father bring Rebekah, and they say, what would you like to do? Laban, actually, though, here in Genesis 29, does not ask his daughters anything. So some of us, we think arranged marriage where, you know, parents are involved in, in uh, you know, uh, a girl getting married, that this, is just this, this was just a, like, I don't care what you think, like, you know, like, you, you just have to go get married. But actually, having known more than one person, at least in my life, that had an arranged marriage or, or parents that were deeply involved... Uh, Rebecca's experience seems to be the ones that I've heard where, no, like, I'm like, were you consulted? Do you just get told to do? And they're like, no, 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 no. Like they asked me, like, do I like this person? And, and how, you know, it, it's, it's far more civil than you would, I think maybe some people paint it to be. People think parents being, in, some people think parents being involved in anything is just immediately like a, a, a horrible infringement on rights. But in, in, in these cultures, it's not. What we do see is that Laban doesn't do this. Rebecca's marriage to Isaac involved kind of her consent to go. They said, do you want to go? And she said, I will go. And that's why she goes. Um, Rachel, and especially Leah, their, their feelings are not mentioned at all. And that contributes to the darkness of this. And so Laban, Jacob's uncle, whether from, from disappointment or greed or offense, there might be all these things happening. He starts setting out to get what he can get. The best, the most he can from his nephew who showed up with nothing. And so what does he do? His daughters just become sort of pawns so he can get 14 years of hard work from Jacob. Laban's reaction to the messiness of life is to objectify others to get what he wants or even to get what he feels he deserves or is entitled to. Sometimes when the walls start closing in and stress happens in life, you begin to grasp. You begin to say, well, if it's going to be this bad, I, I, I deserve this. I should have this. And you begin to cause harm to others in order to do that. Many of us do this. We find that life, when life gets messy, we do it. And we squeeze and we, don't, we start to not care who stands in our way. I remember this during kind of many of my earlier years. And I probably still do it now. You know, you start getting mad and then it's just like, well, I'm just going to, you know, you, you, uh, your kids make you angry and then you have like revenge staying up late even though this is like horrible for everyone involved, right? You made my day miserable? I'm going to have a great night. I'm going to stay up late and like enjoy myself. Um, nobody? Just me? All right, well, okay, you're going to learn. Um, all right, so, but we have an alternative to this. You have an alternative to revenge staying up late. And like Jacob, we can choose instead to call upon the Lord. We have that precedent. Jacob, though, doesn't do it. He's still, as far as we can tell, somewhat. It's not that, I don't know if he's not talking to God at all. Again, don't put what's like, just because it's not written doesn't mean it's not there, but certainly it's not highlighted. Um, it seems, though, that he just wants what he wants. He's set his heart on who he's, his heart, set, heart is set on, and he just puts his head down to get it. Granted, it's, it's kind of romantic. It seems but a few days, but he's just put his head down. There's no consultation with God. There's no dialogue. How many of us do that? Certainly, Jacob desires something good. He wants to be married. He's in love with this girl. These are good things, but he blinds himself to listening to God. He doesn't ask. There's no asking. There's just a putting his head down. He says, well, well, I have the favor of God. I have the promise. He said, I'm going to have offspring. I'm going to do that. 
And so he's presumptuous about how God is going to unfold his plan in Jacob's life. If God promised that he loves me and he's for me, then he's probably going to do these things. And he just goes forward. These are good things. Why would God not want me to have that? There's no dialogue. And how many of us do this? We assume, we assume the way that God wants to unfold his plan in our lives. And the result is often like this passage. And so at the end of this part of the passage, we, we have these contrasting narratives. There's a servant who, talking with God the whole time, leaves a few days later with a wife for Isaac. It's just a few days. He like goes there, a few days, right back. And then we have, in contrast, Jacob the deceiver, coming in messy, crashing and burning, staying for 14 years and more, tricked by his uncle into a divided house because he's still learning to seek God. And we are probably more like the latter, if you're like me, but we have hope because this, a sermon hopefully should never be, and the God's word is not about just perform better, just do better, just seek God better. It's not like that. It's not just don't be like Jacob. Be good. Don't be bad. It's not that. This is about God's gracious hand, leading us to see something better than what we're grasping us for. Even though Jacob is not good at this, God is still going to keep round and round working with Jacob. There's a, a Psalm 74, 73, sorry, 73. Someone's going to catch me. Psalm 73, there's this moment, uh, there's a verse where it says, I was like a brute beast before you. And I remember because I forget what happened. There was some time that I was asked to, I think it was before the pandemic. They were like, hey, we're reading Psalm 73. Mike, do you want to read that that week? And I just like wept the whole time as I was reading it. I was standing here weeping reading it. But I think God's gracious hand helps us when we can't perform and do better. So let's read on. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She, named his, uh, she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. I want, I want to take a quick note. Rachel's barrenness, by the way, is not because... So, so Leah's womb is open because of the Lord, but it doesn't say Rachel was barren because of the Lord. Sometimes in the messiness of life, sometimes because the world is broken, we find that things in the world are not as they should be. And so we have sickness and disease and barrenness, and our bodies are breaking down. God is not actively causing those things to happen. They're the result of the fall. They're the result of what we collectively, collectively as humanity have brought upon ourselves. And I want to make that really clear. What God is doing and what scripture shows is that Leah's womb is opened as a grace and as a gift because God sees that she's hated. He sees that she's unwanted. Her father didn't care and didn't want her. Her own husband doesn't care and doesn't want her. Her sister is against her. She's not wanted on every side. And so God mercifully opens her womb and gives her the dignity of having the firstborn, which for us, for some of us, that may not mean a whole lot being the first child. Uh, but for many of us, especially if you're from a more traditional household, this was just an incredible honor. And so like God sees Leah, he sees you and I. Often God will give you the most unexpected, gracious gifts to bring comfort in times of trouble. Trouble in life is definitely not to punish us, 
Trouble in life is not always mirrors to show us our sinfulness. Sometimes life is just hard. But God brings gracious gifts to show us some relief. And so maybe today you're in the middle of something, and that's all it is. It is the brokenness of life getting to you. And maybe God wants to give you a sign that he's with you. Maybe he has been giving you one, and you need to see it. But you need to talk to him. You need to seek him to find out what's going on. And so with this comfort, Leah begins to relate to God in a new way in these verses, but we're going to get back to that. Let's go on to chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said to her, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then Jacob said, then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him, called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel then, Rachel said that he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And so you can see there's the tension of this house. They are ripping apart their home with jealousy. The two sisters are in bitter competition. Each wants what the other has, and Jacob is furthering it by showing favoritism, which he knows is damaging because he came from a house of favoritism that damaged him. He experienced it as a boy. He knows, and yet he's doing it. And they're ripping apart their home because they all, they all have things. They all have things they want, but they could not have. They all yearned for things they thought would fulfill them. And as the messiness of life unfolded, the ideal that they had did not become reality. And they struggle to respond and walk with the Lord faithfully. Leah wants the love of her husband, the affection of her husband, but she doesn't get it the way that she wants. Rachel has the affection of her husband, but badly wants children to the point where she says, give me children or I might as well be dead. Jacob, I'm sure, is sitting there in year 13, 14, wondering how this has all gone, the, the, how this has all gone sideways. And let me ask you this question, thinking of Rachel's statement. What in your life would trigger that kind of extreme response? 
She says, what, what would make you start to just think, why am I getting up day to day? And I want to, you know, obviously, if you have serious thoughts of self-harm, uh, I want to encourage you to get help and, and, and to do that right away. You can come talk to me right after. Uh, we, we'd love to help you. But what in your life is kind of the foundation of why you get up in the morning? What in your life, if it was taken away, would make you begin to wonder why you're getting up? And so some of you are in the place right now. You're in a deeply destabilized place. And what God wants for you is to find the only solid thing that will consistently give you the unfailing meaning, purpose, and relationship in life, which is being in relationship with him, to find your joy in him and loving those that he loves. And so with Rachel, in Rachel's barrenness, which again is is an effect of the fall, he's actually being merciful. He's using the barrenness of Rachel to bring about this dependence on him. You see in the last verses, she says, God's listened to me. She's clearly been calling on him. This has brought her to call on him. He's using it as a mercy. And, 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 you know, again, I've already mentioned Jacob doesn't respond the best, right? He's still figuring it out as well. All he can do is get mad that Rachel's getting upset. He's just like, I'm not God. I can't do this. So he's like learned the lesson that, because remember Isaac prayed for Rebecca's womb to be open. He doesn't remember. He like kind of remembers the lesson, but he doesn't pray. He just says like, ah, that's what God does. I'm busy. I'm tired. So what's the point of all this? What is the right way to respond? Everybody's messy. Everyone is, you're like naming your kids in competition with your, you know, the other wife and everyone is a mess. What is the right way to respond? And so like a mountain peak with two valleys, these are the low parts. In the middle of our passage-ish, we see it with Leah. See, Leah is the most caught in the crossfire, as we've said, the most wronged and neglected in a lot of ways, arguably the most taken advantage of and suffering the most. And she has this moment of surrender in the middle of all of this. You see, Reuben's born. She says, God has looked on my affliction. But then she tags on a bit of despair. Now my husband will love me. With Simeon, she says, the Lord has heard that I am hated. So, so her focus is still on the fact that she's not loved the way she wants. What she wants, she's not getting. It's still on her mind. With Levi, now my husband will be attached to me. You can feel the despair of this. Remember, each of these children are minimum 10 months-ish, right? So, you know, we're talking over years, her, her enduring this. But with Judah, she says, now I will praise the Lord. That's all she's got. And so... In this, most, in this initial most painful era, fresh off, off the wedding and all of this deception, she comes to this place in the middle. Later, you can see that it, she kind of falls back off, but, but we're given this moment where, where, where chaos leads not to despair, but to conversation, a conversation that brings peace, one that lets her say, now I will praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, friends, especially when life is hard, especially in the midst of messiness and brokenness in life, when people are sinning against one another, when we are sinning, what we need to do is seek God and him alone. Not grasp harder for the things that we want at the cost of harming others, but grasping for a heart that depends on God alone. A heart that's satisfied in praise, a heart that's satisfied in the peace that God gives in the midst of trial, 
I mean, if you think about the songs we sang this morning already, isn't that what we were doing? We're just trying to learn how to praise the Lord, to praise him for being in control. We read that passage because we're saying this is what we're focusing on. Now I will praise the Lord. And so may the messiness of life show us that what we need is God. And may we let the chaos lead us to conversation with him. With that, we're going to enter into a time of communion and response. And I think what I want to ask you to do is what has God brought up in this passage that is affecting you this morning? What is the foundation of your life that you maybe you're kind of on the foundation of God, but you find that it just feels a lot better to lean on this other thing. Maybe that's costing you a lot. Maybe it's costing someone else in your life a lot to do that. Maybe your expectations and your hopes and your focus, all of your attention is on something that it shouldn't be. Maybe it's a good thing, but maybe it's not the ultimate thing. Maybe you need to repent and turn. Ask God, God, help me to see you, focus on you. As you take communion, if you're a believer, we're going to go out this door and, and we have to do it in the hall because we can't have food or drink in here. Take it, call on the Lord, talk with him. If you're not a believer, we'd ask that you abstain. This is really about those who have really taken that step to place their faith in Christ, who've been baptized. And so we, we, we uh, uh, but at least if you have faith in Christ, we want you to take and then if you, if you don't, we'd, we'd ask you to just consider what you've heard. And you can walk around with everybody else and come back. Um, but we'd ask that you uh, not take if you're not a believer. This is also a moment to realize that if you are in a pattern of unrepentant sin, if you're in a place where you are uh, uh, just, you're, and, it, and it's not that you are having trouble with sin, but that you are refusing to even call on the Lord to help you. If you're in an unreconciled relationship, if you're in a place where I, I am obstinately refusing what I know God wants me to do to bring life, then I'd ask you to, to take a moment to confess and repent before you take. Because when you say, God, I want to be with you, I want, I want, I want to take part with your life, you're inviting him into those spaces. And it's not a reflection of where you are if you're refusing the life he wants, and then you take communion. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. Then we're going to respond. God, our God, we seek you. Earnestly, we thirst for you. Sometimes uh, things can be difficult and weary. We often will hold ourselves up, isolate ourselves away from what we fear and what causes us pain. And even that is costing someone something and it's costing us something. Or some of us are in the thick of things right now. And what we need, God, we want to have the kind of heart that can burst forth and say, I will praise the Lord. God, thank you that you are the one doing that, that your word promises that you will complete the good work you've started in us. We thank you that because we have taken that step of faith, that you are working this out. And so, God, we, we pray that now you would give us a deep sense. God, I pray for anyone this morning who despairs of where they are, that you would bring out a deep sense 
of faith, a deep sense of comfort, a deep sense of your love. Please speak to us. Please be with us. We pray in Jesus' name.